Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. We are a podcast about movement. We believe that movement should be treated as a lifestyle, not just an activity. Our main goal with Moving to Live is to break down knowledge silos. So whether you're a movement professional or an amateur aficionado, you can learn about movement from different people with good movement stories who exist in a variety of movement fields. I've been trying to get today's guest on since I first thought about the podcast, and I realized this guy would be really cool to have. I've known Paul Swift, who owns a bike fitting company for over 20 years. He is one of the reasons, along with Elaine Turney of Dirt Rag Magazine, why I have spent thousands of dollars on bicycles and various bicycle toys. So on the one hand, I'm mad at him. On the other hand, I'm very happy for finding a lifetime habit. And I think the best story that I can tell about Paul is with a former bike shop owner in Auburn who used to tease me about being a triathlete and tease other triathletes. And Paul made the comment once way back when he was first starting his bike fitting business. He goes, you know, those guys have a lot of money too, and they can be a valuable part of your business. So Paul Swift, thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live about your history and also about your branching out into the bike fitting business. And I believe you have the second oldest bike fitting company in the world or the second oldest bike fitting uh, program in the world, if I'm correct. Yeah, I, we think so. Anyway, we, I, what, what, Ben, it's just awesome to be here. And I'm sorry I took so long to get on here. Uh, you've been an inspiration. Ben and I, man, I could just go on and on about things that Ben and I did back at Auburn. But um, I, as far as I know, we have the second oldest fitting system, like in the sense that you could buy it, you can take the program, we can teach, we can educate you. There's no doubt other people were doing bike fitting in some sort of way with what we call the instead of a goniometer, we'd say the eyeometer, you know, your eye would say, you know, I think that looks like we could adjust it like this or that. So those people existed. So I, I can't, you know, we didn't invent the category, but I, I think uh, fit kit deserves a lot of credit in the U S and uh, I had learned some things from them, but saw some holes. And so bike fit systems or now bikefit.com today is what we believe to be like the second oldest. We've been around a long time. Yeah. I think what's interesting partially is the story that you have. You are a former elite level racer who started track racing back when you were, if I remember your story correctly, when you were 12 or 13 years old in Wisconsin. Is that correct? That's pretty close. I, I think I was 14, but you know, I was a kid, a teenager. Where I grew up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, I'm a total Midwest boy who just happened to get out. Uh, you know, I can go back and sit on a bar stool right next to somebody. And it's like I was there yesterday, you know. Um, but uh so it started there. Uh, we had a track or velodrome in my hometown. So that, that was how I kind of ran into that. We had a natural land sort of skate setting where you'd go early, put your blanket on the hill and watch bike races. And we had some big names come in and it was a hotbed. And so that, you know, it was a proximity thing that really kind of got me involved. And, uh, yeah, I borrowed a, fr a bike actually from a friend of mine. That's how I did my first bike race. 
so that's yeah i'm come, the little kid from uh, wisconsin you know <laughs> and i know we're in the middle of the covid 19 and self-distancing yeah. but i know you've got young kids and one of the big things in the world now is the the world just outside of COVID-19 is the specialization of kids and, you know, how long before they have to specialize in something or turn to being a pro. And what you're describing is you started bike racing when you were like 14 years old. What did you do before then? Were you just the typical Midwest oh. kid who ran around? Yeah. I mean, yes, but I was a typical Midwest sort of sports kid. I mean, I did every sport, you know, baseball, basketball, football. We didn't really have soccer, that type of football. Uh, you know, I did some wrestling. I, I, you know, so I did all those sports and my gosh, it's, you just, you talked about my kids. I mean, I never visualized being like married, having kids and what would go on, but like in our front lawn, the last several weeks has been like workstations, <laughs> you know, of balls, cones, little weights that look like, you know, they're, they look like a, a kettlebell, but they're, they're, they're plat, you know, they're sand filled. And, and we have like these stations and things. And I built a, I built a balance beam this week, you know, as a project with one of my kids, we, and it was like, we had this long board. I'm like, nah, you know, so we put it together made two into one just as a project. And so we've been doing this outside. We can here, luckily, you know, I'm in Washington, but I'm not over in Seattle. Thank God. I used to live there. We now live in Spokane. So we're about as far away as you can, can be. But and my daughter got hooked up in soccer and happenstance just found her way, you know, as to being a goalie and a goalkeeper. Oh my God. It's like, you know, and they travel and she's probably one of the, there's one other girl that her and this other girl, like the top. So what? They're the top goalkeepers in little Spokane. The specializing is crazy. I'm looking at my wife and, and, and she's saying things like, you know, I'm not so sure if she's going to want to do it next year. I'm like, that's fine. We can play softball. We could do this. We could do like, she's 10 years old. My God, I was doing everything probably like you were, you know, plus all the pickup make believe games we made. But so in our front yard reminded me of this, you know, because of what we're doing right now, I'm hanging out with my kids doing somersaults over the top of balance ball, you know, BOSU balls. And I got the half BOSU and it just, we're moving. We're moving. That's it. We're moving. <laughs> and I think that's, I mean, that's the key thing. And I think what's interesting is what you just said. It's like, you know, she's 10 years old and she's this one of the top two goalies in Spokane. So what? I mean, on the one hand, that's pretty cool. On the other oh, hand, I'm how much do you think that attitude is contributed to by the fact that you raced at the elite level in track cycling and recognized that sometimes maybe somebody that I've never heard of or listeners have never heard of yeah. may have been the best cyclist out there that just because of luck of the draw, the situation of who other cyclists were in that particular race, nobody's ever heard of them. And in a slightly different situation, we go, oh my God, that guy is the best that you have ever seen. Um, it's throughout the years, I would run across these like you sort of catch them out of the corner of your eye and like, who's that and where they're from and what are they doing? Um, it, but to kind of elaborate on like, yeah, yeah, I'm extremely proud of my daughter, but it's like, Oh my God, soccer is more than life. And, and so she, she rides horses and things like that too. But, and like, that's gone by the wayside. She hasn't done it in like eight months. Uh, but yeah, there would be pockets of people you meet. I mean, I got to travel, you know I mean? The cycling is, uh, I'm so lucky. I mean, it took me away from home in, in high school already and I got to travel and, and meeting some people like you'd meet somebody like, Oh my God, that's a specimen, you know, and whoa, look what they can do. And, and sometimes you'd find that off the bike and then like, whoa, they couldn't do it on the bike. And other times like, Oh my God, this guy's so fast. He's going to be amazing. And then like, Oh, he disappeared. <laughs> you know, and other ones, other ones stayed and showed up. Yeah. It's, it's, and why, I don't know. I don't know why some disappeared and some didn't, you know? And I, th I think it's interesting. You said, you know, she may not want to play next year, but she's got all these other activities she's done, which is, I think for kids is great rather than mom and dad say when they're 10 years old, okay, you're going to only play soccer. This is all you're going to do. And then maybe they hit 15 or 16 or they finish high school and they say, you know, dad, I don't really want to play in college. It's not fun anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know where it's going to go. Cause like, um, you know, I talk a little bit about, so we, we, we did go to a soccer field the other day because her, her little brothers aren't quite old enough to really like push her. And so I do. And, 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 um, and I'm like, well, how she, she knows I rode a bike, but she doesn't really know, you know, I mean, she's now seen a race or two on video and, and I'm like, how, how much do I, I don't know anything about soccer. So, but I can push in the sense of, I know you need to, you know, have certain skills like you know you need to be able to jump you need to be able to twist turn run you know and i can help with all that but like 
And I was talking to my wife about, you know, maybe I could put something together for all the girls. Like, you know, I could totally help on these skills. And then I'm thinking like, stop, they're nine years old. <laughs> stop. You know, like, you know, uh, so I, uh, but I did, I had to talk the other day with my daughter about edges <laughs> and she's like looking at me. And so I took out two stacks of paper because my kids come into my office and steal my copy paper all the time. I, I mean, I go through reams of it. Right. And, and so I have two stacks of paper and I said, life is full of edges. And I don't I, like, you know, I, sometimes I go to her and she's like rolling her eyes. Oh, another daddy talk. huh? She's like, yeah. I said, but life is edges. She's like, well, what do you mean? Well, in my world, sometimes a bike race would be won by, you know, a couple of millimeters. And how many edges did I put together? And so I say, you know, if I had a good night's sleep, I put one piece of paper there and that's an edge. You know, if I went and worked out today, that's an edge. I said, but edges are also things like being good to your brothers, uh, eating well. You know, I worked out today. I worked out an extra 20 minutes. Like maybe that's four or five edges. And you start putting them in a, on a sheet, you know, and in the next pile and you're, you're accumulating your edges. I said, but no, the thing is, is I'm going to be your competitor over here and I'm going to guess at how many edges they're doing, you know? And so like, you know, we were, I go, are you finished working out or do you want to get one more edge? You know? And so I don't know, am I pushing too hard on that? But that's my soft sort of, without trying to hammer it, give her a life lesson, 10, who knows? Probably went right overhead. <laughs> Even though we still have this stacks of paper here, we're working on the edges in life. <laughs> At least you know where the paper is. I, this time, and she's not using them up, and the kids aren't stealing this stack. So, uh, yeah. I think it's always interesting when people have been very good athletes, what drives them to get to that point. I mean, I know in my case, I'm a 6'1 center and power forward in high school, which means I wasn't very good. But you always have in the back of your mind, it's like, you know, just in the right situation, I could do something. And I remember going volunteering at the Empire State Games, which were state Olympic games, and seeing people, and I'm going back, Kenny Anderson and Christian Leitner play basketball. And immediately it was, I, I remember it as clear today. It's like, yeah. I mean, whatever dream or whatever small percentage in the right percentage, it was just gone because they were bigger than me. They were faster than me. They shot better than me. They made better decisions. So you start track racing. And I, and I think it's, you know, if you're in Kenosha, if you wanted the opportunity to do that because there was the track there, I mean, it is convenient to do that. If you're here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there's no track closer than Trexeltown probably. Right. What, what was it at the point that made you realize, okay, I can be pretty good at this. I can maybe do some traveling, maybe win some races and do something a little bit different from what my friends are doing. Well, I think, uh, yeah, because not everybody rode a bike where I was from uh, in my hometown. Uh, part of it is I had a brother that was a great athlete. Like I did baseball, but he was better, you know, at baseball. Uh, he did football, but he was better than I was. And it was pretty f tough and pretty frustrating to have. Uh, I mean, my brother was an amazing athlete and I wanted to be like him. Hence, you know, his nickname, his nickname was Butch and I was mini Butch because all I did was everything he tried to do. Uh, but bike racing finally for me was like, oh, my brother didn't do this. And here was my chance. And the, we always knew about the track. Like we called it the bowl. You know, we didn't even call it a velodrome or a track. Cause it's like, where are you going? We're going to go hang out the bowl, meet friends. And so finding that was finally my first in my head, not compared to my brother. And, uh, that's a pretty long story there, how things in my determination and some of the stuff I ran up against, uh, cause I, when I first started, I did, I won every bike race I entered except for my very first bike race, which had a different finish line than a start line, which can happen. Uh, like there was a race in Ocala, Florida once and I threw up my hands at the banner but the finish line was like 20 meters past the banner and I ended up getting second. And it's, it's embarrassing, but like, it's my life lesson. You can't hit the target if you don't know where you're going. And so the fact that this happened in my first race was very clear that you have to know where you're going and setting targets and goals, you know, and some aren't always what they seem. For example, you know, it's this little kid from Wisconsin. I always wanted to be premier elite, whatever United flyer. And then I realized I made it. And then I'm like, man, I'm sitting in the airport a lot. This kind of actually sucks this really isn't quite you know so some goals aren't what they seem so this helped me in cycling uh, i did all that i was touted as this kind of like this who's this kid and then i got sick and i i don't know if you know my story about my rare disease i had that almost kawasaki disease uh which is really weird a white kid in wisconsin at 15 like this mostly strikes kids in japan so it's mostly asian kids two three four years old 
Pacific Rim, if anything, if not in Japan, and I'm in Wisconsin. And that kind of knocked me out. So coming back was, that was the battle of my life. And coming back and get out of the track. You don't belong here. You're no good. You'll never be anything. You're, you're like, it's quite emotional for me. Like, and I kind of forget it. My mother would remind me, she goes, you know, those people are really not nice to you. And, and I almost blocked it out. I just wanted to be a bike racer. My brother wasn't doing it. And so I like these jerseys in the back here. If I go and talk to kids today, I have like a couple duffel bags full, big ones of those jerseys. And all those people that criticize me, they don't even have one amongst them. <laughs> and I know I first uh, came across or first met you when you were at Auburn, when your cycling career was winding down. And I think it'd be fair to say you were kind of trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> and yeah. I, had the, I had the opportunity to help you with some research at the very beginning of bike fitting. How did yes. you kind of fall into saying, you know, I think doing some bike fitting can be a, essentially a second career because I think if you're racing yeah. at the elite level in cycling, even at 16 or 17, that's a career. It's, uh, I mean, it took me all over the world. I'm grateful. I didn't necessarily have a lot of money in my pocket, but for not having a lot of money in my pocket, I've been to a lot of countries and a lot of places and, you know, what I would have had to have earned to do that. I don't know. Uh, so it was a great opportunity. At the end of a career in athletics, it's it can be kind of frightening and daunting. Because uh, I had some friends that had no idea what to do. I had lucked into this. I have one leg shorter than the other one. And sort of my interest, I think, peaked maybe in 82 or 83 when I was at the Olympic Training Center with Dr. the late Dr. Ed Burke, who's written some cool books. And Eddie B was there, an original fit kit the first fitting company. And that's when they just, they thought I had a leg length difference. And, and indeed I did. I ended up like throughout my, you know, I documented this. I built up because I got built up pedals, built up shoes. And so I'd run into people along the way, like, Oh, you're pretty good at this. Can you help us? And so there were times when I was asked as a cyclist to help people with their fit. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, I was sitting next to a guy like one time, uh, Dory Scalinger, who's a top, uh, uh, athlete in the Paralympics and he's got a, his leg is missing from the knee down or below the knee or something. I forget the exact title you call it, but you know, I'm a dude sitting next to a dude and he's got a prosthetic. Okay. And, uh, he's like, Whoa, you modify your pedals. Like he looked at closely, you know, and he's like, well, what are you doing? All this stuff, you know, don't modify it. But you know, it's an go, I got a box full of me. He goes, would, can I have them? I'm like, Oh, I felt so good to give them to somebody. And so, this crept up and then uh, near the end of my career, you know, I'd be hanging out at Auburn, a wonderful Dr. Pasco who, uh, you know, in Auburn, you know, I met Bill Kazmaier, I met all these different people. I built my own ergometer, which we had in, in the lab there. I still have today. So I built this ergometer, how to test and, and things. And, and I was mostly doing it a couple of years before you with my career of how to, how can I, how can I adjust my training program to get maybe more power, a little bit longer power, a little bit more lasting but here I'm at the end and you're there and I'm like, Dr. Pasco, I think I'm done racing. I don't know what to do. And a friend of mine had said, come up with this wedge thing. And it was a big block. I'm like, no, no, dude, it's got to be thin. He had no idea what he was doing. He just saw that pedals wore crooked. So I looked at my stash of pedals over the years and they were worn crooked. And so my contribution, I, I don't know why. I was like, I was an alternate on Liberty team the second, third time, whatever, how do you want to count it? And so I'm going, I mean, I'm finally finished school. I'm going to finish school. I'm going to get a degree to go on with my life. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get all these things. And I got hung up on this wedge and project. And Dr. Pasco was so cool. And I said, hey, you know, I don't know what I'd do, but I'd like to test this thing. And you were there. And uh, I'm not sure if the year before was your, the other guy uh, from Milwaukee or Wisconsin. Glenn Wright. Yeah, Glenn was there. And he was like, all right, we can do this. And so... <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. You guys helped me so much, you know, like, so we're doing this, like, we're going to do a, like, I'm thinking, oh, we're going to do a study. It's like, whoa, 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 you got to write this up. Yeah, I have to do a pilot study first, you know, and somehow we got through that. I don't, I don't remember, you've put in a lot and I, and so we got through it and then we, so we tested the wedges and we found that people with wedges produced a little bit more power and the antiquated machines that we use that you and Glenn would run with that physio machine and feeding the paper through it and the little blips going up and down and, and you'd count like how many times the blip went up and down every second as the cyclists. I mean, it was kind of barbaric compared to today's way of testing, but it was then it was that testing, you know, it was hanging out with you, Dr. Pascal's lab. When I went, wow, this product produced people produce more power without, training like they got two percent 1.97 percent power increase was the the average and i was like and they felt more more comfortable 
And next thing I know, I'm giving all this data to my buddy who had somehow started a company, raised money. And he's like, hey, would you come work for us? I'm like, oh, look, man, I, I'm 32 or so. I don't know what I was. It's early 30s. I got to get a job. I need to like move on with life. He goes, no, no, we'll offer you a job. You know, I, you know, I need to get my degree to get a job. Isn't that the thought process? You get a degree to get a job. And they're like, well, we'll pay your moving expenses. I'm like, well, finally, he goes, we're going to give you an apartment for a year. And I was like, what do you go to school for, Ben? Get a degree to get a job? I'm like, screw that. They gave me the job, the moving expenses, an apartment. Forget the degree. I packed up and left Auburn. <laughs> and how does one transition from working for a company that makes shims, shims or blocks, small blocks for pedals to running a literally an international bike fitting education company? God, we didn't know what we were doing, man. Like, so I thought these wedges were so cool that, you know, all these bike shops and fitters, which I didn't realize there weren't very many back then, would just take the product and put it in, like, and use it. And I would get phone calls, and I'd like, oh, hey, my knee hurts. Will this help? And, oh, my foot hurts. Will this help? And I'd look at these people, like, going, like, I think the wedge would help you, but, like, you look terrible. <laughs> like, like, you need way more than a wedge. Like, the wedge is not going to help you, man. You, you, you look awful. And that is, I don't know if I was at it a year or so when we realized, like, they're like, Paul, can you develop a fitting system? Like, I, I, I look, I, I said, I think we need a fitting system because the current one wasn't quite covering some of it. And I'm like, can you do that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I can do that. <laughs> it's kind of like how I got into the, the spin teaching at Auburn. You know, Bill Casmore's like, can you do that? Yeah, sure. And next thing I go, ben, I go, Ben, will you teach classes for me? You're like, I've never taught before. You can do it. <laughs> And so uh, Ben took over my spin classes in Auburn. So that was pretty cool. And I think and, the, uh, the interesting thing about that is, as a side note, we've inter interviewed yeah. a variety of uh, fitness studios here in the Pittsburgh area. And a lot of them have uh, spin classes and some of them say, oh, you know, you know, we really enjoy spin. We've had it, had it for two or three years or maybe five years. And I always uh, think back to when you first got me to teach spin and your comment was, well, they say it's something new, but we've been doing it at the Olympic Training Center since the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, the idea of making the ergometer then was like, I mean, I'd been on ergometers in the eighties. Like when I, I left home in high school to live at the Olympic training center, uh, we had a room full of ergometers. These were old modified monarchs with regular cranks and this and that. And it was, um, everyone had a bucket next to it. It was uh, a rough experience. If you had an afternoon workout, you did not eat lunch. I mean, uh, it wasn't fun. So when spinning came about, I was like, God, why would anybody want to do that, man? Because it wasn't fun when I did it. I mean, it was <laughs> such such a hard workout. Like, it was never fun. And then I, when I took one one time, I'm like, oh, they kind of made this fun. So, yeah, that, that, that and that segued into another part of my career because I designed a bunch of stuff in, in indoor cycling. And uh, But anyway, so I got into the, like, how do I do this bike fitting thing? And I came for just all kinds of stuff. I had my brother. At the, I, I knew I needed to measure knee height, bend or figure out seat height. And they were, the only thing out there was a formula. And I realized bike shops weren't necessarily at that time great at formulas. I didn't really think it was a good idea for them to measure inseam. And I said, what's the goal of that? Well, the goal is the knee bend. And I'm like, okay, so there's this thing called the goniometer in, this, <laughs> in the clinical world, the medical world. And so I did that. And then there was this company, Penny and Giles out of the UK, that had an electronic goniometer. And my brother bought it for me. I had no money. So in 95 or 6, my brother bought me this $2,500 electronic goniometer, which is really like the, the precursor to a retool or something else today. And I thought, no way in the world would somebody use this. But what I did is I just put it on cyclist after cyclist. And I, at that time, was only measuring knee bend. And I finally like, okay, they seem to be happy in this knee bend flexion. Uh, range and so then i started recording and, and then there's a little data out that read and i was like okay so knee bend should be between x and x that was the long laborious process of you know and then things like well geez their knees are going way out like crazy like you know and i always equate it to like the personal trainer you got you've you've introduced a lot of trainers and they'll, they'll do lunges and they'll want the person's knee to go right in line with their foot and i've watched a lot of personal trainers and you know their client might do one lunge slightly you know knee inward or outward of that foot you know meter lateral and they're like hey hey you got to get that lined up on well, cycling we could do thousands of pedal strokes totally misaligned and so that started it and then there was nowhere to learn this so then it took juan carlos gary gray uh juan carlos santana gary gray cook all these guys in the perform better group and i was trying to learn what are force angles and so then i started applying that going like oh if this angle is probably not as powerful as this angle 
And then I developed these pedals, then I developed this, and I hung out with an occupational therapist, and she was a world-class uh, master cyclist, and she helped me with the upper body. I go, what do you do at a desk? What do you do? She was like one of these people that works ergonomically on a desk or something like that, which I didn't, I had no idea what the heck that was. And she said, well, we could do that on a bike. And I said, well, show me. And so we started then with hands and grips and shapes and a neutral wrist position. And, and, and I was like, and so I applied that. Anyway, it just was a, my style. Dive in to the muck, try and figure it out. You know, the definition of chaos is a whole bunch of moving parts. I go and I grab one. And if I don't like that, I grab the next one. Now I have a stable datum. Now I can pick the next one. Now I can pick the next one. And sometimes you go four or five of those. Ah, wrong direction. Go back. Pick a different one. And it was simple that trial and error. So when I work in the clinical world today, it's like, oh, you got case studies, this and that. I'm like, well, I invented a lot of this stuff. And I don't have a degree. And no, I don't have any case studies because I ran a business. If it didn't work, I threw it out a long time ago. <laughs> and I can't have a 95 success percent sex race. I have success rate. I have to have 98, 99, or I'd be out of business at a 95 success rate or 94. And so though I kept those kind of things. Uh, it's hard for me to really capture the mess in my head and articulate it <laughs> to how I, I really got there. But I, I just buried myself in a room for months with a $10,000 budget go to machine shops. I'm across the street from the LA Equestrian Center. I'm watching the farrier, 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 you know, put on horseshoes. Like, can I learn from him? You know, uh, every, there was no, cause there were no classes. There was no place to learn this. Yeah. Somehow I cobbled to cobbled it together. <laughs> I worked with shoe cobblers, you know, as well to like modify shoes and put together our first manual that like, People are like, wow, this is pretty good. Whoa, wow, this is pretty cool. Hey, this works. And this is before I even met the clinical world. Yeah. And I know in the in the performance world and the in the academic or the research world, the performance coaches always say, Well, you know, the research is research, but how do you use that? And on the other hand, the researchers say you have to have the research before you can do the performance. It sounds like you're more in the line of the performance field or the coaches. It's like, okay, I can use the research but it still has to work for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the world of bike fitting, um, it wasn't really existing in the clinical world yet. You know, like, like the bike shop world, I'm going to call it for lack of a better, you know, the bike shop, world, I'm going to call it the coaches, the trainers, whatever, non-clinicians, the bike fitting world is much bigger. We're way ahead of the clinical world. And that's not like a, that's just a fact. It's not a, a bragging statement. It just, you know, I used to have doctors call me like, oh, I don't know if we should be doing this. And I'm like, well, then you know, with the wedging in the feet, and I'm like, well, shouldn't seat height probably be set, set by a doctor? And the doctor's like, well, yeah, probably. I said, well, can you just give me this list of doctors and we'll send every cyclist in the world to this, these doctors? And the phone goes silent, you know, and it wasn't trying to like, you know, one up or prove a point to this doctor, but it was like, look, man, the medical world's not doing this. I, think, uh, I met somebody who finally said, look, it's he was, who's a doctor. And he's like, look, it's our job to maybe help this world come along. And that's when more and more, I think, uh, I really think I was probably, I'm probably the instigator of the seed that really planted the clinical and non-clinical worlds working together. Partly because of bike fit and bicycles are so equipment intensive too. You know? And I know, I think you probably agree since when you started riding to say, now or even 10 years ago, the technology in bicycles has changed dramatically. Oh. And, you know, you probably with your first bicycles with gears that you use for training, you know, maybe five speeds on the back, no index shifting. And now there's 12 or even 13 speeds index shifting. And yet people are spending more and more money. And it would seem that people would be saying, you know, I should get a bike fit with this $5,000 bicycle because it shouldn't hurt me to ride this bicycle. So I tell people when I first got into bike fitting, the only person you would see, the only person loved cycling, like they loved it to know tomorrow and it really hurt and they wanted to keep going. So regarding the research versus the non-research, well, there, there really wasn't much research going on at the time. And so we were just trying to figure things out. We knew something was, it wasn't right. People were uncomfortable. It wasn't working. And so we had to make changes to help that. Uh, and so a lot of times it'll come down to that. And, and, and so 
sometimes I'll be in a group of clinicians, you know, and somebody's knees going out and they're like, you know, and they'll, they'll be analyzing it like, well, it's because they have a tight this and they're overdoing this and that. And finally, one time I said, you know why the person's knee goes out when they're riding the bike and they're all looking at me away. I go, cause that's where his knee wants to go. And so, um, like you still have to address it. It's a snapshot in time. And so this is the hard. So then, so then I, I segue, I get back into my world a little bit with like, okay, this is the way they're functioning today. They want to ride their bike today. They want to ride their bike tomorrow. Whatever it is you think you can do or should be done, how long will it take for them to change? Remember, today's a snapshot in time. So you're learning how to do the bike based on this snapshot. If you change that snapshot later, great. And so I, I just try to give real world examples of that. Uh, hanging out with Professor Jim Martin, by the way, out of Utah, does some cool studies. Professor James Martin. See, I knew him back as Jimbo when he rode a bicycle, you know. And and he was talking about, I think it was a recent BMX study uh, and something with, it was the Canadian national team. And they're like, it's this gear. And you know, and, and Jim's like, well, how do you know? Well, they did this whole big study and they go, it's that gear. They knew what gear it was. Like sometimes we just figure it out. So like, like as a sprinter, you know, I was a sprinter. It's like, you know, heart rate monitors, this and that. It's like, some of that doesn't matter. You just have to go fast for 11 seconds. Like if you didn't go fast enough, it didn't matter whether your heart rate was up or not. What kind of heart rate are you going to measure in 11 seconds anyway? You know, it's like, oh my God, he cranked out the fastest time ever. His heart rate didn't go up. Well, he achieved the goal. I mean, or it's like, you know, uh, his heart rate wasn't well maybe it wasn't warmed up enough or this or that but like you figure it out at this level the nice thing that what i like about like say jim martin stuff unfortunately it's way late in my career and now it's in the bike fitting is it can help sometimes when you're going down the wrong direction it can really help nip some things in the butt or like you know what we're really not finding that psychologically you might have had that effect but hey we all know that too man if like psychologically it's working it's working you know, so, uh, yeah, I just, um, I have to go, look, I, I invented this, you know, and until someone disproves it, um, you know, I go to the researcher, like, uh, I go, so how do you set this up, this test up anyway? Like, what's your protocol for the cleat position and that? And like, oh, we just have them go. And I said, well, how do you know that doesn't affect it? Ah, it's not that big of a deal. I said, you know, I could take all your people, tweak the cleat and it, the cleat and they'd be in such pain. They wouldn't be able to, uh, keep going. It's like, Oh, how do you know that? I said, well, let me do it. And they go, no, don't do it. I go, I know that because you won't let me do it. <laughs> and I know from listening to a podcast you were on earlier, you actually had that experience during your cycling career where somebody looked at a snapshot of you and said, that doesn't look right. Which led you down the path of changing cleats and shoes around. Because if I remember from listening correctly, you had a knee that liked to go out a little bit. The, uh, so that helped me. So the bike, there was, yeah, you take, you take what you can from your experiences, right? So when I work with new fitters and new people, I go, look, you beg, borrow, and steal. They go, what do you mean? I go, use my story until you've learned your own story. You use somebody else's situation until you've encountered that situation. I go, as long as you get at it long enough, eventually you'll have your own stories. That's life. You know, as somebody who's probably lectured all over the place too, like, oh, that lecture took that little thing from this guy and this one from that. We all beg, borrow, and steal. Uh, but... The, um, um, for years, we were under the impression that if you brought your feet in closer, this is before bike fitting, that your knees would also come in closer to the bike. But it was kind of like, you know, I was standing around off the bike. I'd go, you know, if my feet are together, my, I looked a little bit bow-legged, just a little bit, like nothing obvious that made me self-conscious or anything. Like some people are really bow-legged, right? And I thought, wow, if I put my feet a little wider, though, I don't look bow-legged. I mean, it literally is that simple. I mean, I'm, I designed this one product. I go, so you're a genius. I go, look, if I was a genius, I wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, if this product was designed by a genius, I wouldn't be able to do it. It's the simple stuff. And so I, I finally, man, I would, I would literally like take screws and put them into my pedal to force my foot in. I'd take screws from the outside that force my like I kept trying to bring everything in. I'd grind down the cranks. I'd grind down to bring it in closer, but my knee was always out. I couldn't get my right knee in. And it was out of just pure frustration one day. And I, if you choice swear words, I'm just like, screw it. And I put my foot all the way out as far as the pedal would go. And I was like, oh my God, it actually feels good. And my coach goes, wow, you brought your knee in. <laughs> you know, and it's like, wait, how many years did I chase this with so-called experts looking at me? 
late eighties, you know, mid eighties to late eighties. Uh, no. It, and so that's when it, it, literally, how do we do bike fitting today? Wherever your knee is, put your foot underneath it. The problem is on a bike, you can't choose where you put your foot. The bike tells you where to put it. When you and I walk, run, jump, we put our feet wherever I want to. Wherever you want to, wherever I want to. There's nobody telling you. There's no gun at your head. There's no mechanic, like magnetic forces in the ground, and there's no channels where you put your feet. You just put them wherever the heck you want to, right? When we do all of our movement, we just put it wherever we want to. But you get on the bike, nope. The bike now tells where you where to go. And so that's like when you start, when I get then out, that helps. It's another story to get me out of the research thing. It's like, look how people function. Now you put them on a bike, they change, you know? And it's like, Really, I think the idea of the fitter is to help them change less, you know, not to, you know, change. Like, oh, I don't know if I should do that adjustment. Well, you probably shouldn't even have that. Your person probably shouldn't even sit on a chair. I mean, how old are chairs? You know, how old are, you know, you know CrossFit got me to be able to hang out in the squad again. Like, you know, when you go to Asia, everybody's just talking around, smoking a cigarette, you know, a 15-minute conversation in the deep squat. And I'm like, man, I, as an elite athlete, I'm over there going like, man, I can't even do that for five minutes. <laughs> I know as somebody who is a techno weenie, I like technology and I don't know if it's because of the influence you had on me, the reading of the research and thinking about it, but I know whenever I get a bicycle, there's always something I tweak on it. I mean, I have my type of pedals I like to use almost every road bike or gravel bike I get. I know I have to switch the handlebars out because I like a wider handlebar. I think there's never been a bike that I've bought that I've kept the seat on because generally the seats aren't comfortable. I actually gave away about 20 seats to a, a client of mine and said, try one of these if they worked for you last yeah. fall. And I know if you go into a running store, you've got somebody who will watch you walk or watch you run or many physical therapy sure. clinics will do this. They'll put you on a treadmill. They'll have you try different shoes and they'll do a running analysis and offer you advice. Yep. You know, there's some bike shops that do that and some physical sure. therapy places that do it. Why do you think it's not more prevalent? Because Biking is a little bit more complicated than running because, as you said, everything is fixed wherever because your feet are on the pedals. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm flattered that I had an influence on you. Wow. Um, you know, like, you meant so much to me back then, like, you know, helping me out. So uh, thank you. Uh, I think you said a lot there. I think that was really loaded from. So I'm going to just try and pick one or two things. Like, um, if you were to go to a running store and I take with my students, I do this all the time. We're in a cycling room. And, and if we look at all the cycling shoes, uh, it doesn't matter the price, $80 shoe, $500 shoe, $250 shoe. They all actually function the same exact way. They're almost except for one brand, but this other brand is the same 80 to $500. You know I mean? There's no change. So they all have a flat neutral forefoot. So it doesn't matter what company, what brand, what price point, they all have a flat neutral forefoot. And so, so then I say, segue over right away to like the running store. I said, look, any of you guys ever been to a running store? If not just do it once for the experience where they watch you run. And for me, it's walk. And, uh, but, um, and so if I go with a group of people to a running store, let's say if I go with five people, more than likely we will buy at least four different shoes in the sense of how this one fits your architecture and body better. This one works with the way you work. And you can do that in a running shoe. You can go to a running shoe. Like I used to just for years, Oh, I'm going to Europe. I want a pair of blue shoes to match my red, white, and blue outfit. You know? And then finally one time I was like, well, how does it feel? Like I didn't care. Well, then when I went, Oh my God, that shoe feels way better than this shoe. You know, and what are you looking at? And so I do think actually the walking running gate's more complicated than cycling because cycling is a fixed one. It's the understanding that's different. Uh, I do think clinicians and things like that can go and there's much more. There's been your running's been around forever, right? But there's classes, there's there's education or things you can learn about analyzing a running gait. So that's been around a longer time where the bike fit analysis has been around a much shorter period of time. That's one way I approach it. And so it's why our bike fit is so important is all these flat neutral shoes and cycling have to be changed and altered towards the person. And then you mentioned all the different equipment. Uh, but if you go to a running store, as you know, and everybody listening here knows, you go to a running store, there's a whole fall wall full of running shoes. And then there might be some clothing and accessories, but it's running shoes. You go to a bike shop, you find the shoe section, 
And then you got the handlebar section, the saddle section, the bike section, this section. That. Like it's, it's a very different world. And, you know, cycling shoe business, you know, is like tiny compared to, you know, the running shoe business. I mean, let's face it. I think Nike got into cycling for a little while. And I think it was maybe doing a couple million in shoes and they got out of cycling shoes because that wasn't enough money for them. You know, um, there's all these inherent things to cycling the way it is that are the challenges. Um, and then learning, you got, you, you can't just learn the foot. You got to learn the saddle. You can't just learn the saddle. You got to learn the hands while well, running. You pretty much, unless you're maybe you're a coach or something like that, you're just pretty much fitting those running shoes. You know, and so you're right. Things like saddles. Now that, you know, because I, I didn't actually invent, but I brought, I owned the patent and rights to the saddle changer, the switch it. So I probably have changed more saddles than anyone on the planet. And I'm not saying that to break. I just probably have because I brought this product to market. Uh, I've changed so many saddles. And this is the reality. When you buy a bike, Ben, you know, it comes with a saddle. You, you just mentioned it, right? You didn't like them. Well, of course. Um, chances i tell people if you buy a bicycle and it's the right saddle and it really is the right saddle and you go and test a whole bunch because now with the saddle change you can do them in a, in a couple seconds the problem for another problem in the industry was you how long did it change to take a bike seat so my, my bringing this product to the market you know i can change a bike seat in literally like a couple seconds with no tools from 15 minutes I mean, you couldn't go and test all the saddles so now we can test all these saddles and you actually sit on them and see which one's right for you. But I tell somebody, if you got the right seat, if you bought a bike and you go and test all these different saddles and that was the right seat, go buy a lottery ticket and I want in on it. That's how rare it is. <laughs> talking so with a Paul lot Swift going on there. Yeah. We're talking with Paul Swift of Cycle Point. He's, he's brought some excellent info in. I'm curious too, along the lines of different types of clientele for bike fit and, and who it might benefit for. I know you mentioned when it first started out, basically the clientele or the customer was, I love to ride my bike, but it hurts. But now yeah. you've got indoor classes. Now you've got people riding outdoors with different types of shoes that are made for cycling. And then you've kind of got a third population where they love to cycle, but you know they're scared of shoes with the cleats because they're going to lock them in. When you start with a fitting or somebody comes in and they, they uh, have a fitting with you, how do you approach it differently or do you approach the fit differently if they're doing a spin class versus they're riding a bicycle where their feet are using cleats versus if they're just using flat pedals or maybe even pedals and, and uh, toe clips? Well, I, I think you, you bring up a great question. You bring up a great question. And you also talk about like the beauty. You, you, without realizing you may, you're talking about the beauty of cycling. Anybody can jump on a bicycle and go. And that's really cool. It's one of the first skills we learn as a child, you know, like I, 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 maybe tying my shoes was a skill I remember, but riding a bicycle is one of the first skills. And so I think that's the beauty and wonder of cycling is it brings us this joy and you can hop on with tennis shoes and go. And the cool thing about that market is we tend not, tend not to ride the bike as long when we get on with tennis shoes and things like that. So our, our five, 10 or 15 minute, 30 minute bike ride and not locked in, people can get away with a lot more. Then you have all the way up to the racer, but you have everything in between especially right now, indoor cycling. I mean, my God, I mean, Zwift had 250,000 users logged on at one time the other day. Uh, Peloton is a $4 billion company spinning who I've licensed products to and go to was the biggest in the world at one time. They're not 4 billion, you know? I mean, um, so yes, indoor cycling, outdoor cycling, the beginner. Anytime you get into cycling shoes, I almost approach everybody the same way whether they're riding in the Tour de France, worked with those, or they just get on, the shoe pedal interface is the same. It's a process. And so somebody says, oh, well, then you're, you're fitting on comfort, you're fitting on performance. Ben, anybody who gets on a bike, if I ride my bike down to the park, because I like to go do some things over, like they have these low fences and I do my exercise over it, that's a performance. I, if I'm going to the grocery store, that's a performance. If you're riding your electrical bike or your dad or somebody like that, they have to perform. So the fit has to fit the level of performance. And so it's always a performance fit. Comfort being much more uh, usually wanted than desired in the recreation, this and that. So some of the elite athletes occasionally comfort. It's rare. Comfort's still the issue because 
I tell people like, what's, what's a great bike fit feel like? And I've been at all the years. I don't have a great answer other than the bike fit is supposed to be whatever you want it to be. People are like, what are you talking about? Ben, if you and I are riding to the grocery, to the coffee shop, I want our conversation about me and you hanging out. I don't want to think about that bike at all. If I'm racing against you, Ben, and I'm trying to beat your butt and you're trying to beat my butt, I want to be thinking about how I'm going to beat your butt. But anytime I'm distracted back to the bike, then something's wrong. So I like the bike to sort of disappear, to become part of what you are. And so if I'm racing, that's into the racing to allow me to do my job racing. If it's riding to the coffee shop, my experience should be me and you hanging out to the coffee shop. If I'm riding to the grocery store, the main thing is once you get down to, um, you get more into the tennis shoe riders and the, you know, like, you know, I ride, ride with my kids all the time, tennis shoes and whatever. Um, the fit's just a little bit more relaxed. It's a little bit easier. You know, the more upright you are, the bigger and wider the saddle might be. Um, the more upright and closer to handlebars might be. Um, you know, so it, it's still the same guides, but you base it on the level. I think that may, raises a great point in the fact that anybody should be comfortable cycling. And it brings up the question, I know your wife is a physical um, therapist and, you, and you've worked clinically. Are there ever situations that you've come across that despite working with the client, you just can't get them comfortable on an upright bike and you recommend maybe a recumbent? Um, you know, that, yes, has happened. It's, 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 it's um, some of the most moving stories uh, I've ever dealt with um, kind of come from that, like people that have had something happen to them and they love to ride a bike. For example, I worked with this gal for a couple of years in a row who has epilepsy and her doctor told her she cannot ride a bike. And she's like, screw it. I'm riding a bike, but she rides a trike recumbent with a flag, you know, and, and gosh, you know, I had someone the other day. I mean, I, I can't, I can't tell the details of the story, but this person in their sixties was in the hospital and they got the wrong medication and they're blind. So now they're on a recumbent and we fit them on a recumbent. We fit people on a tandem. So there are some people that just, Hey, they like to recumbent and it feels better. I fit people on a recumbent indoor bike because that was their level of fitness. So people that are very large sometimes, um, I, I mean, I've, I've worked with somebody from Biggest Loser. I've worked with somebody from, you know, the cool thing about cycling is it brings all of these worlds together. Then there is why I like the blending of the clinical world and non-clinical world is somebody might look perfect, but they still got a problem. And so that goes back to, I think it was in the early 90s. I just moved to LA and I was on, on a bike ride and I happened to be next to a physical therapist. And we got on the topic of like, I'm doing this bike fitting. And I see this client and they're like, uh, or I hear about this client. They go to the PT and you know, at the coffee shop and they're like, oh, I feel better. And then a couple weeks later, I feel bad again. I'm like, well, because you keep getting back on this crooked bike. You know, so then I had a really great conversation. It really helped me open up the clinical world. I said, well, maybe I could work on the bike part and you could work on the PT part. And then I even brought him in to like, you know, I said, look, if I can't figure out a fit, will you come in? I may have been one of the first people to ever do that. I would pay this guy to come and see my clients if I couldn't figure it out. That has helped me grow a lot. These are very smart people. They bring a lot to the table. Fast forward, you know, yes, my wife's a physical therapist. She definitely checks the clinical side, team around the world. But she will have something like, you know, uh, there was a lady who had her, her foot got trapped. She works with some pretty cool people. Uh, trapped in a mountain where a rock slide came down, like, you know, was there for a couple of days and didn't get out. And they're like, still want to ride a bike. And so we had to modify a pedal. No, my wife does the fit, but I came in and we helped modify the pedal. So it, it kind of works both ways. And yeah, it's what I love about having this this crossover group when it works like there's still some resistance i'm clinical you're not or i'm i know how to do a wrench and you don't like come on let's let's just put our strengths together uh because again it's I, I tell i had a clinician the other day oh i'm thinking about carrying some bike parts and like and they were one block away from a really good bike shop i'm like you are crazy this is what you are really good at you're good at being you are as and i knew this you're a good physical therapist they're a really good bike shop no no work together you know and so uh, i encourage that working together as much as possible and i can share story after story of where i've referred out and it's come back to me i don't know if it, i can say tenfold but it's come back to me like you know i get five six referrals back because they realize you know like 
wow. I had one PT call me like, how'd you find this disc moving on my patient? You know, I'm like, I didn't. Like, what do you mean? I said, I did it. Like, well, how did you find that? I go, I did the fit everywhere I could and I still had back pain and I couldn't figure it out. And this, by this time I'm married to a PT and I, so I brought her in to look and she's like, oh yeah, his disc is moving. He needs work on this and blah, blah, blah. So I wrote it up the best I could, send it to this physical therapist. She sent me everybody that rode a bike. Not pretending that you know something is better. You know, I was happy freed me. He's like, I knew all the answers to the questions 20 years ago. I only had like 10 questions though. <laughs> I just didn't have a hundred questions. Now there's thousands of questions. I have the answers to you know, a lot of them, but not all of them. <laughs> I know one of the things we try to do with moving to live is break down the knowledge silos to get people. And it sounds like you're doing that oh. same thing. And I know the problem with that just across the movement field, not just bike fitting, not just in physical therapy is there are egos involved and whether you recognize yeah. it or not to be able to say, I don't know, or, that's not my area of expertise, but go ask Paul because he's really good at that. Takes a lot of self-confidence and people who don't have that self-confidence think, well, if I send them to Paul, they're going to think I don't know what I'm talking about, which is actually exactly the opposite, especially yeah. if you help them. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up like an indoor cyclist and setting seat height. You know, I try to let indoor cycling instructors know that there's more to fitting in the sense that, hey, you've done what you can and you've kind of worked with somebody you know what, this person might be able to help you do more. When I, you know, I'm new to Spokane, but like in Seattle, I had several physical therapists, you know, they would send me the, the problem children, you know, because this is what, you, after you're in it a long time, you start getting the challenges, you know, and like, yes, this lady had a club foot, shorter leg, and, and the PT's like, I, I don't know what to do. Well, I mean, I probably had to spend seven to eight hours with this woman. So number one, that blows the PT setting. Like, how do you bill and channel for that? Doesn't fit the retail setting at a bike shop, you know? And once I hit a certain point of billing anyway with her, uh, this was a special project and I just worked with it. But it was a, an amazing example of us, you know, it was the credit to her physical therapist for recommending this, you know? It was, it elevated her physical therapist in her mind. And so I think... You know, I didn't necessarily maybe like that idea when I was younger, but now I'm realizing, like, look, I, I'm pretty good at some things, man. But like, I learned at Auburn, you know, this professor said, "Yeah, great content, Paul, but your grammar sucks." And I'm like, "Thank God I have content," you know, <laughs> you know. And I like, so I have to have someone. I, I hate to admit it, I have to have someone proofread a lot of my stuff. But you know what? I can crank out content all day long. <laughs> I really like the fact that Paul Swift of uh, Cycle Point has said that, you know, the great thing about cycling is anybody can do it. Anybody. I'm curious, and I, I you hit on the point that, you know, people who are using flat pedals riding to the grocery store, there's a little more freedom, so to speak, because they're not doing mm -hmm. the same motion as long. How many people, somebody's taking a spin class or spring's coming up and hopefully we'll get away from social distancing and be able to go and support our local bike shop. Who is the bike fit beneficial for? I mean, I, th I can see many people where they say the bike oh. is uncomfortable or the seat hurts. Yeah. How do you sell it to somebody who, say, is buying a $500 bike that, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to spend another couple of hundred dollars so that this bike is comfortable? Well, at that level, it might not be a couple hundred dollar fit, but it, it, it does. It, it's across the board in the sense that anyone riding a bicycle uh, hopefully is comfortable enough to enjoy it. So there are some bike shops, not all. Uh, I worked at a shop locally here. They have three or four locations and they're like, well, how we just want to get people, you know, that 10, 15 minute happy, comfortable. And that might be enough for that person in the, uh, the tennis shoe upright basket category. You know, um, I, I tell people bike fitting ex extends past what we might think. And so then I'll give a story. I'm at a camp. So the kid's got cerebral palsy is one foot like this rotated way out and he's telling me he doesn't like to ride a bicycle, you know, and I'm holding back the tears in my eyes. Right. And I'm like, and I can tell why he doesn't like to ride a bike because his heel hits the crank arm, you know, and I'm like, and he tells me, and I, and I, so I put a pedal spacer in, I don't touch anything else on this kid's bike, nothing that's bike fitting. And so we have to just break it down. Now, I have had some people sign up. Hey, they, they are what I call fitness category, you know, tennis shoe, this, that, and they're like signed up and they're going to pay for the whole like three, $400 bike fit. 
they come in. I'm like, wow, they don't even clip in. You know, the interview somehow this all got past us, and and I'm done in like 30 minutes, and they're like ready to pay me. I'm like, look, it's that's 75 bucks. You know, go join. So I, I've always tried to be encompassing of everyone. I don't like to pull out that I was this elite race or this or that. Like the longer you never were. Wait, how does it go? Uh, the longer you. The, the longer it has been, the closer you are to it never was anyway. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, people like, oh, you just ride for fun? Yeah, I just ride for fun because I love cycling. And so I relate to everybody. And I and only if I have to pull it out, like I got these indoor cycles. Oh, I, this instructor said I was supposed to pull up. I'm supposed to do this, supposed to do that. And I go, well, I have to think about this. And so I used to kind of knock the instructor for not knowing what they're talking about. But they're just trying to come up with stuff to pacify you through the class. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with the pulling up and the pulling back. It does nothing for you. I can tell you that it does nothing for you. Look at Jim Martin's research and studies. Somebody finally backed it up, you know. Um, but I go think. Just think about what you want to do. Like my my, I'm serious when I say, if Ben, I want to ride at a coffee shop with you. I really, I just want to talk to you, bro. You know, I I want my cycling experience to be that. When I'm riding with my kids, we did the longest ride yesterday with my one son because we're by a river and it's like there's nobody here, and we went down to this deserted rowing thing from Gonzaga University. They're not doing it. They, you know, the rowing crew, dirt trail, saw nobody. You know. Um, it was to enjoy that. You know I mean? Yeah. I and mean, my wife and I debate how high our kids seat height should be. And we rotate the handlebars and, <laughs> and we do all that stuff for fun. And we, we were fitting them on their uh, push bikes, you know, uh, like what's, what, what level of contact should they get with the ground, you know, <laughs> to push. Um, but no, I, it's, it's, it's to disseminate to everybody. Yes. People only came to us in the beginning when they were hurt more and more people will buy a new bike now and go, I think I should get fit more and more. The, the competitors are doing it, uh, but it's trickling down now. I use skiing as an example. A lot of people buy ski boots. Like they wouldn't dream of buying a ski boot without getting them fit. You know, like, okay, if we have that sort of mentality in cycling, that helps us reach more people. That's a great point. I'm curious, two questions, two final questions. Cause I know your schedule is busy. First, <laughs> first question is, I'm glad to be here, Ben. I love it. Thanks. <laughs> I think, the, I think the first question, and we, we touched on this a little bit and I know I, uh, had this experience when my girlfriend started riding is so many people, when they ride the bicycle, you know, they buy that bicycle and they say the seat isn't comfortable. Well, you and I both know that you can go through a lot of seats. So maybe somebody doesn't have access to a bike fit how do they even begin to address, okay, I don't like the seat on my bike, so I'm not going to buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> how, do, how do I begin to address this? Because depending where you go, you know, anywhere from $40 to a couple hundred dollars to try another right. saddle that may or may not work. Right. Saddles are a very frustrating one that for years, you know, for years in bike fitting too, we just kind of accepted what was on the bike because of it was very hard to change it. Uh, there wasn't a big selection, uh, but the world has changed. You, you talked about equipment, like, you know, the, I can't keep up with the equipment anymore. And I, I look at bikes all the time. So how can you expect other people to keep up with the equipment? Like, where do I adjust this brake lever now? Oh, this one goes from the back and not the front. Uh, but I am trying very hard. And by the way, I'm bikefit.com, like, like I'm cycle point. We separated. We're kind of blending it back together. Uh, probably shouldn't have separated. We, a lesson we've learned, you know, uh, we we're going to separate education and products. Well, I still do the same thing I did under the bike fit umbrella. Um, and I, but our goal was to address what you just said, uh, help people in the saddle because it's a huge complaint area. It's a frustration for people. It's, but it's a frustration from the bike shop too. Like I would get mad and want to point fingers at the bike shop, but, they don't know any better until we go to them and go, look, here's a way for people to try a saddle again and again. And I was sold, I don't know, three or 400 in the U.S. Yeah, we got to sell another 500 to get almost everywhere. So someone like you can go to Pittsburgh, you know, and, and at least, you know, within a reasonable drive and try a saddle. The other frustrating thing is, is like what doesn't work is some of these people go online and they're like, well, I'm fitness, I'm semi-flexible, I'm this, I'm this, and they go, this is the saddle for you. It's about as good as throwing a dart at the dartboard. And I saw the one the other day where the dude puts out a map, tells his wife, when this is over, 
throw the dartboard. We'll go there. Well, guess what? Guess where the dart went? Behind the refrigerator. Didn't even hit the world map. So anyway, <laughs> you know, and so that's how far off we are, you know? It's like, and so the idea to, um, to, um, um, to, to get uh, down to the bike shop level. Um, so then, then the industry came up with this, like, let's sit on this pad. And then you're going to go and off the wall and go, this is the seat for you. This one I equate to, we talked about the running store. You probably set your foot on a device called the Brannock device. So you set your foot on, they set your foot in something that measured it, right? Well, they don't come out and then go, here's your box and walk you to the cash register and pay for it. They take the shoes out of the box and put it on your foot so you can try it. And so there's so much misleading information and the consumers on the bike seat level, I'm so frustrated for. It's almost daily that we have some sort of effort go out. I constantly hit these, you know, forums and groups and we're constantly trying to blast out there. You got to go sit on the seat. So we made this device called the saddle changer and switches. So thanks for bringing this up. Many bike shops that have it. It's awesome. You can walk in. And, and, uh, so I was at like, one of my first prototypes was at a Woodenville bike shop, middle and you know, Woodenville, uh, little bike shop, middle of nowhere. Gal comes up. She goes, you know, I got 65 bucks for a seat. She's a fitness rider. Guy's like, look, here's what we do. We put everybody here and we, we just, you pick the saddle you would like and go through the process. And, you know, all of a sudden she's like, I like this one. And it was, and it was tough. You know, I grew up pretty poor cyclist and, you know, I'm looking at this person and the guy's like, well, this is a $95 saddle. You know, and the gal said, I have 65 bucks. And what would we have done, you know, a year ago? We would have said, Here, here's a $70 saddle that works for you. You know, and, his, and she's like, wow, that feels really good. And she, this gal said she rode twice a week for an hour. And she's sitting there thinking about it. And I'm like, how is this going to go? How is this going to go? And she goes, you know, I'll take it. And it was, as much as we all got to make a living, on, and this, I, don't want, I don't ever want to gouge somebody. I don't want to ever make them spend more than they really would like to. But, like, this was just for $95, this girl's riding her bike and she's happy. You know, I think a lot of us would be willing to pay a little bit more if we knew it was going to work. That's the problem. And so people that have this little device, they've noticed their average sale price is going up because they've gaining the confidence of their customers that are coming in and their friends are telling people like, Hey, look, I actually sat on these things before I bought them. I was able to, you know, this was kind of expensive, but you know what? I knew I liked it before I bought it. And say, I've been to a really nice bike shop. They're like, this just four years ago, this company out of Canada was making this really comfortable saddle and it was like retail for 80 bucks. Well, I actually been to, I can't believe this, Ben. I've been to a few shops that are like, it's too cheap for our lineup. Okay. I, you know, I, I'm just like, I don't care the price of the saddle. I just want you to be happy. I mean, you know, the male or female, it doesn't matter. We have things that can hurt down there, you know, like, and I said, all right, put it at the bottom. Try all your expensive ones first. If you don't sell them on the expensive one, then finally pull it out. You know, like I was still trying to work a way to get the saddle in there, you know. Uh, so tell your, your bike, your, anyone who can't find a seat that's comfortable, bikefit.com, and we will call the bike shop for you. We will try to get this product in there. Like I say, we have three, 400 around the U.S. We probably need about 500 more, and we could cover this country pretty well. Where you go in, you sit on a bike seat, just like you try on your tennis shoes, you don't try on tennis shoes at the store. I mean, buy tennis shoes at the store off the shelf. Try them on. You walk around a little bit, you know, and it's like, oh, well, I need an hour or two. <laughs> okay. Well, you could say that same thing with your tennis shoes. You know, if you didn't like them, you didn't go put the hour in. You liked them in your first five minutes, and then you put your hour in. It's a long-winded answer. I wish we had it quicker, but changing the industry is hard. And, and, and I'm telling you, tre- specialize in track. They're misleading you with this thing, but you know what? They think it's cool. They, they've finally given their bike shop person an answer to the, the stories you make up when selling a bike seat. Oh, well, so-and-so likes this one. So-and-so likes this one. The most advertised saddle is this one, which is terrible. Nobody rides a physique, you know, and things like that. Yet it's one of the most popular saddles in the world. And you go through test trials and nobody buys one. You know, so you can't go by the, the advertisement. What you like, uh, Ben, more than likely, I won't like. I've studied pelvises a from a non-clinical perspective, I've hung out in studies. So like I thought I did this little thing, pressure mapping and my brother thinking biologically, we're probably the two closest, you know, I don't know anyone else closer to me, Ben, we don't ride the same saddle, not even closer in look or shape or form. (laughs) 
You know, I, I mean, I'm not a twin, so I couldn't go that close. Uh, you know, I have twins. We have to test that when they grow up a little bit. <laughs> but they're all different. Like, my brother and I do not ride anything close to the same thing. So it's hard to find it without really sitting on it. We've been talking with Paul Swift of Cycle Point. He's been describing his story of developing bike fit system. I think the best point of it is that he just wants people to ride their bikes. Paul, somebody's buying a bike or they have a bike that maybe they're not comfortable on and they're listening to this and they're going, well, how can I find out a bike shop that does bike fits? What's your recommendation for finding a shop or even a physical therapy clinic that does bike yeah. fitting? Well, at, at bikefit.com, we have a, a, a locator, and it's probably one of the biggest locators in the world uh, of clinicians and non-clinicians bike shops. Um, we are probably, uh, bike fitting wise the largest website as far as the number of people and hits that come to us. So we really have developed, a, there's lots of questions on there, like, you know, there's a Q&A section in a blog. There's a lot of help on there. You email, people email us every day. We have tons of tips developed to try and answer those. Uh, I don't say we have every question answered in the world, but we have banked hundreds of questions in illustrative form of what it might look like when you, when someone emails a question, like a pain and pressure on the outside of my foot. We have three or four illustrations made up. You're probably like this, this, and this. And people are like, oh my God, that's me exactly. I said, yeah, I know. I took the picture when you weren't looking. Um, but we've banked hundreds of those. Do we have all the answers? No. But do we have a lot of them? Yeah. So bikefit.com, we are probably the biggest resource for that. And we lead you to a place. It's not that we are getting that. We lead you to the shops that are good at it, the clinicians that are good at it. And when it's not there, you email us and we try to answer it. And if we can't answer it, we work with some experts around the world too and, and different countries. I, I mean, we have so, some saddle studios, some places that all they do is saddles. Like, I mean, not all they do, but like the huge saddle section, you know, um, that's rare, but it's, that didn't exist a few years ago and we can lead you to those places. Great information from Paul Swift. I think he's given a great explanation of how he got started and done a great job of explaining why cycling is a movement activity that all of us can participate in. Paul, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to moving to live. It's been a little while to get you scheduled, but as I knew, <laughs> well worth it. Oh, well, well thanks. Man. I, I, I just love how anybody can ride a bike. I have friends that are blind. I take them to the gym and put them in spin class. Uh, all these people that our age now, they can't run anymore get on a bike, <laughs> you know, the bike's always the answer. I got to lose weight, the bike. I want to feel better, the bike. I want to go to the shrink. No, go ride your bike. I want to, it's the bike. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. I, it's awesome, man. I, you have made such an impression on me in my life. Uh, it's carried through in my work. You may not know it, but a lot of what we did together is in my daily work, literally. And that's how much you mean to me, Dr. Pascal, and, and things at Auburn University. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.